You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. By show of hands, how many of you like going to weddings? Show of hands. Hmm, surprisingly more than I expected. I suppose the, the question could be answered by you based upon whose wedding it is. A close friend may be more interested. Uh, an, an over-the-top extravagant event where there's going to be dancing, maybe even more interested, or maybe more even disinterested. If it's a relative or if it's a coworker, I suppose there's different perspectives. Weddings, for some people, are a chance to get dressed up, a chance to look good, feel fly, look pretty, look nice. For others, it's a chance to go bankrupt a chance to have to spend a lot of money on something that you're like marginally interested in. Just kind of depends on what that that would look like for you. Weddings are interesting because, you know, depending on whose wedding it is or where it's at, kind of determines whether or not you're interested. Well, tonight, friends, you're being extended an invitation to a wedding that you do not want to miss. A wedding that you certainly are going to want to attend. And it's a wedding that I want you to see it, hear it, and understand it for yourself. You'll do that if you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, as we see this wedding for ourselves. Joining us tonight for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, the good news of Matthew, a record, an eyewitness account of the teachings and the life of Jesus of Nazareth, who was not simply a Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, rather. He was the Son of God. And he is teaching mind-blowing truths about who God is, mind-blowing truths about this world around us. And it really does help give us glasses to see what otherwise we cannot see nor understand. Matthew 22 is the continuation of what's been happening in the previous chapter. In fact, The audience that he's been dealing with has been primarily focused in on the religious elite, those who seemingly know the Bible, know the Torah, know what we refer to today as the Old Testament, know the writings and the prophets better than anybody else, and seemingly knowing it so well should respond, you would think so well, but actually that's exactly the opposite. Jesus is having a rather confrontational conversation. And it really kind of stems around this question of Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come in and upset these traditions? Who do you think you are to come in and flip over these tables in the temple? Who do you think you are to receive this type of worship out of the mouths of even people like children? Who do you think you are to come into a place like the temple and be able to offer healing to people that otherwise could not fix their problems themselves? And Jesus continues to say, man, you do not see it. You're not getting it, and you're about to lose it. 
Our text tonight is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. Tonight, we're going to see this kingdom of heaven as Jesus describes it in the very beginning of verse 2. As it says in verse 1, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Again, Jesus is speaking to them in this way, and it says that back in chapter 21, verse 33, where he says, hear another parable. And then earlier in chapter 21, verse 26, or excuse me, verse 28, he says, what do you think? And he tells his first parable here in this conversation, a man had two sons. These parables we're aware of, but now tonight we come to the parable of the wedding feast. And as we go through this parable, I want to highlight for you five aspects of God's character, because Jesus wants to teach them a lesson in light of the backdrop of who God is. They think they know who God is. You tonight might think you know who God is. That belief of God will be audited by the words of Jesus Himself to see how much they align or do not align with actually what the teaching, how much they align or do not from the Bible says. The first aspect of God's character is that God's generosity is extravagant. God's generosity is extravagant. Look at chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. This idea of a king with a wedding feast you can imagine, he's not just speaking of a man, not just simply a merchant, not simply just a farmer. He's talking about somebody of royalty. When royalty throws weddings, it's worth making it to the headlines. It captures the attention of those in the town, even if they're not there. So many people in society, not simply in England, but around the world, were caught up in the royal weddings of the family of the monarchy in England. When Princess Diana, who has since passed away, was married to Prince Charles, the world was watching, and how many articles were written, how many pictures were taken. Everybody was interested to watch it. Everybody was seeing it on TV. They weren't even invited. And man, they wish they could have been. Today it's like this with our own culture. When the rich and famous get married, everybody wants to know about it, even if most people aren't invited. And the amount of money spent on these ordeals is just over the top. I mean, if you think about the average wedding, the average wedding in Florida costs $16,000, but the average wedding in South Florida costs $33,000. That's partly cost of living here, cost of venues and other things, and partly because we just have to supersize everything in South Florida. But honestly... $33,000 is chump change in comparison to some of these other wedding ordeals. I mean, weddings is remarkable how quickly you can spend an extravagant amount of money. Just the, the dress alone for the bride-to-be is over the top. The most expensive wedding dress to date is tennis superstar Serena Williams, who spent $3.5 million on her wedding dress which interestingly was only like one of three dresses that she wore on the day of her wedding. That's just one single dress, three and a half million dollars. Before you even get to the wedding ceremony though, you have the engagement rings. 
The engagement rings, the average engagement ring today costs $5,000, but friends, that's nothing. In comparison to the famous actress, Elizabeth Taylor, who holds the record for the largest engagement ring bought for her by actor Burt Reynolds, a 33-carat diamond that cost $8.8 million on her engagement ring. The largest wedding on record in society that's been recorded as to its cost is the one that took place in France to the tune of $55 million. Richest man in India who was a steel tycoon, his one and only child who was a daughter was getting married. She wanted to get married in France. Of a wedding, you typically think of it as a couple hour deal with, you know, the ceremony and the celebration afterwards. No, friends, this was a six day festival. Friends and family flown in on 12 private jets from India put up in a hotel that cost just itself $2 million for those nights. And the six-day event with private concerts and everything for them. A thousand guests invited. I have to be honest. If I was invited to that wedding, I would go. I was seriously, I would go. Just because I'd want to see what it's like. Like, that way of, like, what would that, this epic sort of moment, like, imagine the party favors. <laughs> that would be amazing. It would take, like, the whole idea of, like, you know, rice or birdseed or bubbles and, like, supersize it. It'd be epic. Friends, Jesus is describing here the kingdom of heaven to a king who has a wedding planned for his son. And it is going to be amazing, immeasurable in its worth. And he is being described here as this king as being extravagant in his generosity, extravagant because of what it's going to look like, how it's going to be extended, the amount that's going to be invested in it, which takes us into our next couple of verses to see God's patience is humbling. God's patience is humbling, because look what happens. Verse 3, and He sent His servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. You feel like you're kind of reading that wrong? That's what it says. But they would not come. Verse 4, again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. What you notice here in the text is it says that how he 
sent his servants to call those who were invited. The idea in this parable is that Jesus is basically saying, these people who are being called by the servants to come to this wedding, they were already told about this wedding. They had already received the invitation. The information had already gone out. And so they were not being invited to something they had not planned for. Like, oh, if we only had more time and we had prepared, we could have, we could have come. It's not on us. That's on you. You should have let us know. Though They knew. They were told about this ahead of time. So when he sends his servants in verse 3, he's sending his servants to a people who had already known about this opportunity, already heard about this festival, already been given this invitation, and yet it's like it's the first time. As it says there in verse 3, they would not come. I don't know how many of you have ever done hospitality, inviting people over to your apartment inviting her to your house, spend time together, share a meal together. You know hospitality can be expensive, depending on what you're eating, depending on what you're doing, right? I mean, you've got to save up money. You've got to not just pay for your meal. You've got to pay for other people's meal. It's costly in time. You've got to get home from work a little bit earlier, or maybe you have to plan the night a little bit longer because you've got to get time to prepare the food. You got to think through what you're going to set out and the dishes and what you're going to do and how they're going to have that conversation, what kind of who's being invited. And you imagine you do all this work to then invite somebody and they basically RSVP, no thank you. What do you do? Well, if I invite you to come to my house and you say, no thank you, I'll just go invite somebody else. If you just don't want to come, that's fine. I just want to come. I mean, I'm not going to get into this long conversation. Really? Please pick me, pick me. No one come, no one come. The king in the parable sends out an invitation already before the text, presumably, reminds those who received the invitation, it's time now to come. They would not come, and in his patience, he extends the servants again to invite them again, please come. And then he graciously, extravagantly with his generosity, reminds them it's going to be a spread. I mean, you got to imagine, if I say, hey, come into my house tonight, we're going to have peanut butter and jelly and chips, you're like... Okay, I mean, I love you. I'll come. I might, you know, BYOD. I might be bringing my own dinner. But if I say, come over to my house tonight, we're having ribeyes. We're having ribs. We're having baked beans. We're having fried okra. Sorry, that's my southern past. Public sweet tea. My wife's apple pie. Maybe the after-dinner mint will be my wife's chocolate chip cookies. I mean, as you just hear that invitation, you should probably be like, yes, Lord. I sense your presence now. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, you get that kind of invite, you're like, I'm in. Like, this time, what time? Can I come now? Like, it's not for two days. I'll just, I'll camp outside. They'd be like, Woodstock, I'm ready. I'm ready. These people are being told by the king of an amazing opportunity, and they're saying, no, thank you. He's like, no, I don't think you understand. I don't think you understand the significance of this. It's going to be amazing. And they're saying, no, thank you. Look at everything I provided for you. Totally ignoring it. God is continually patient. Third aspect of God's character that comes out in the text continues into the following verses in verse 5. God's justice is intimidating. God's justice is intimidating. Why? Because look at verse 5. But they paid no attention, and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. 
while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. What's happening in the text? You've got to imagine, if you're there, if you're an eyewitness of this conversation, and Jesus is telling this parable, I mean, you kind of have to go from like casual to like, okay, it just got serious. Because this isn't to the RSVP opportunity. These are people, you have a kind of a progression of perspective and how they respond to this invitation of the king's banquet, this invitation to this wedding. And you can see how they respond. It says, they paid him no attention, and they went off, and it says, one to his farm, another to his business. What Jesus is describing here, kind of culture in the first session of Judaism, is basically they were invited to something amazing, but they would rather do something normal. This isn't like, oh, another royal wedding this weekend. I'm so tired of these. Another weekend, another amazing celebration. Oh, I'm so partied out, I can't do this. They trade overwhelmingly the remarkable, the exceptional, the extravagant for the mundane, for the common. What's happening here is that it's describing essentially a group of people who were too concerned with their own affairs to respond to the king's invitation. They just go off to pursue their own concerns. One possible prospective guest is going off to his own farm, another to his own business. Friends, these things will be there tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Those things are normal. And yet, they turn away from this exceptional invitation to pursue the unimpressive, the daily. But then the text gets more serious. While that's one group's response, we see another group that comes. You see what ends up happening here? You see this next group that comes is how they respond with these servants. How they treat them, seizing them shamefully and killing them. So what ends up happening is you have different responses to the Word of God, different responses to the invitation God gives. I was speaking at a conference yesterday about challenges to the gospel, challenges to the good news. What are some reasons why people do not want to respond to the gospel? What are some things that are taking place that people are like, you know what, because of this, I'm going to say no to Jesus. Because of this, I'm going to say no to the invitation to be reconciled with God. And some of those challenges are intellectual. What I'm thinking is different than what this is teaching. It's an intellectual objection to the gospel. Some of those are not intellectual, they're ethical, which is what I want to do is different than what this is telling me I can do and I should do, and I would rather want to do what I want to do. That's an ethical objection to the gospel. Others, it's more of a social objection to the gospel. If I become a Christian, if I follow Christ, if I'm going to be a follower of His, if I'm going to publicly identify with Him and His Word, I'm going to lose my peer group. 
They're not going to want to hang with me. I'm probably not going to be invited to their things, and so I'm going to have a social objection to the gospel, or others are going to have a cultural objection to the gospel. If I become associated with Christ, if I follow the teachings of Christianity, what's going to happen then is I'm going to be associated as being a part of hate speech, of a discriminating organization of, of a individuals who are not loving but who are judgmental and self-righteous. And culturally, I am pressured by this society to not give in to the teachings of Christ. These are different challenges to the gospel, intellectual, ethical, social, cultural. But you know what sometimes is another challenge of the gospel? It's just pure apathy. It's just pure apathy. What's happening in the text with these who are concerned about their business, who are concerned about their farm, it's actually not actually a concern about those affairs. It's just a desire to maintain the mundane. And in today's world, if I can keep you engaged on your phone and a constant scrolling with your thumb of an endless amount of posts, if I can keep you going with an endless array of the true realities of what's posted on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, if I can just get you with one, one little hit drops and another movie drops, this constant reality, then you will basically be amusing yourself to death in the words of Neil Postman's book. And then you'll die. And you'll spend an eternity in hell for the consequence of that decision. Such were the people who said, I don't want to go to the wedding feast of the king's son. I'd rather just be concerned with the mundane realities, the trivialities, because my apathy is too strong. But then as we saw here in the text, there's not just apathy, there's hostility. The hostility that comes seizing servants, verse 6, treating them shamefully and killing them. Jesus speaks of this group in a radical way because he talks about how they're going to be treated. Speaks of them as murderers and says that their city was set on fire. Uh, presumably, it's envisioning the insulters as being concentrated in one city. It would, of course, take time for this to take place, and other events would have occurred before the destruction of the city. It's a parable. It's not a real scenario that's taking place, but Jesus in this parable and this spiritual story is describing, yes, God is patient. Yes, God is generous. And yes, God is just. God's justice is intimidating. It's intimidating because there are consequences. And you've got to imagine if you're the religious people listening to this, Jesus is basically saying, you've been told once, you've been told twice, you've been told countless times, and you keep rejecting the story of who I am. In fact, your history shows as a people that when God was sending His servants, you didn't listen to them. And some of them you arrested, some of them you tortured, some of them you maligned, and God will hold you responsible for that. These Jewish leaders must have just had their mind blown as they're being held to an account of how they responded and rejected the gospel. Which takes us to the fourth attribute of God's character. God's grace is hope-giving. God's grace is hope-giving. Look how the story 
Then he said to his servants, friend of this king, the wedding feast is ready. So nothing's changed. So got a wedding. Food's still out. But those invited were not worthy. This is interesting. Remember this word, not worthy. Verse 9, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. (laughs) This is a royal wedding that you're not invited to, that you wish you were. And then you get a knock on the door. Then you get a mailman delivering. Then you get a FedEx special invite. LaRue, it's time for you. Jeannie, this is for you. Chris, I mean to call you. And you're like, check the address. Are they talking to me? I could really go? You can imagine what this would just be like. Wait a second. This is scandalous. Because notice the term he uses here, this kind of description. He says, invite him to the, he says, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Now, the main roads is where like the city and the country roads would come together, these intersections. It's where a lot of poor people would be looking for work, looking for handouts, looking for support. So this is not the sophisticated. This is not the educated. This is not the impressive. These are not the movers and shakers. These are the people that you definitely pass by and don't even know them by name. And God sends his servants to go to them. Goes out into the road, and look how it describes them. How, whom they found both bad and good. So what's happening here is that Jesus is having a conversation with Jewish people that God is extending his invitation of grace and forgiveness into the kingdom of heaven to Gentiles, which are all like non-Jewish people. Now, just again to remind you, if you were in that time, I'm not saying presently, I'm not putting this on Jewish people, but if you were in that time 2,000 years ago, a lot of the way the Jewish people thought about non-Jewish people would be profoundly racist. Some of which even believed that God created Gentiles as belongs to fire hell, to fuel hell. They called them names like dogs. You're a dog. Here's Jesus saying, the wedding feast is going to be filled with Gentiles who don't deserve it, who you wouldn't expect it, and who seemingly by ethical relationship to the law, good and bad, they're not all good people. Which, if you mind you, if you remember, this kind of goes back to what we learned about last week, right? If you go back to chapter 21, look at verse 32. John came to you in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. Look at the second part of verse 32. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. They're, they're not having a problem interpreting him. Go down to verse 45. The chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables. They perceived, I mean, they understood he was speaking 
about them. What's the response? Repentance? No, rejection. Verse 46. They're seeking to arrest him. Jesus is speaking profoundly of not only judgment to come for those who reject, but also grace to be extended for those who will accept. God's grace is hope-giving. These servants did as they were instructed. They went out into the highways, the byways of society. They went out to people that you would not expect. Friends, that's a part of the reason why this church is called Grace Church. It's called Grace Church in part because it's a synonym for the gospel, the good news of God, that we gladly welcome people here that might not feel welcome any other place. You might not feel that religious. You might not feel like you've been raised well. You might not feel like you have done well. You might feel like, Eric, if you knew about my rap sheet, if you knew about my addictions, if you knew about my decisions, if you knew about my friendships, I think you might wish that I was in some other church than this church. I'm like, no, friend, you're right where you need to be. Hearing the Word of God, seated around you, the people of God, to be told about the Son of God who takes away sin for all those who would respond to Him in repentance and faith. You're right where you're supposed to be, hearing from a servant that you're invited to the festival of the King, of the wedding of His Son, which takes us to verses 11 through 13. God's consistency is sobering. God's generosity is extravagant. God's patience is humbling. God's justice is intimidating. God's grace is hope-giving. And fifth, God's consistency is sobering. Verse 11 turns a corner that we didn't see coming. When the king came in to look at the guests... He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's consider this text because this is a text that is sobering as we consider God's consistency. Why do I say God's consistency? Because God is consistent in His Word. What He says, He means every time. So God loves us enough to tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about what it means to respond to Him. And what you have in the situation here is a cultural issue. So here's the cultural context. If you go get a bunch of people 
who are not related to royalty, not in business with royalty, who seemingly don't have a wedding tux to put on, don't have a wedding dress to put on, seemingly are not necessarily the best looking or best prepared or best dressed or maybe best showered people. When they come to the wedding, they're all given the same thing. They're giving wedding garments to wear. And they do this as an expression of honor to the ceremony that they're going to attend. It's not a reflection of themselves, it's a reflection of the person's wedding they're attending, that they show honor by what they wear. That's kind of culturally what you even do today, right? I mean, you get dressed up, not because you necessarily like the outfits you're putting on, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, but because you're honoring the people's event you're going to. It's a statement of honoring them and the occasion that you're going to attend and celebrate. Well, that's the idea here, is you got a bunch of people who don't have their own wedding garments. And the king has prepared for them through the servants the provision of these garments so they put them on and putting them on, they honor, honor the king. And so what happens is, is that the king seemingly has showed up to his own festival. He kind of comes in and he's meeting his guests. He's seeing who's there to honor his son and his royal wedding. And to his surprise, he sees one there who has been given every opportunity to be able to have on his wedding garment provided for him, but chooses not to do so. Now, there's some debate within biblical theologians as to what is this being described here. Is it the righteousness of Christ where they're choosing to not put on faith in Christ, being clothed with the clothes that God gives, His righteousness? Or rather, is it that they're not putting on, in light of now their profession to follow, a profession to attend, profession to identify with, are they not putting on the good works by which they have identified with the king, honor the work of the king in their life? To my understanding in the text here, what Jesus is speaking about in the parable is that God intends people who say that they have replied to the invitation of the king And to be a part of that celebration, that worship of the Son and His royal wedding, that they would correspondingly would live accordingly. And when they do not, they actually, by their actions, show they don't intend to honor the Son in the celebration, and they're put out. They profess to give allegiance, but they practice another. By no means is this the description of being saved by good works. Rather, it's the reality that what you profess to honor with your lips should be demonstrated with your life. To identify as wanting to attend and to bring honor to whom is honor, and yet to not respond with what God has called you to clothe yourself with. This is the language of Colossians chapter 3, where Paul's language of Colossians chapter talks about if you're seated with Christ, if you're with Him in the heavenlies, he says you should put to death the deeds of the flesh, and he speaks about it, he says in verse 12 of Colossians chapter 3, you should put on then as God's holy beloved ones, and the term that Paul uses is this term of like garments, this clothing, how you then live accordingly. One of my concerns pastorally as I know as a concern for Pastor Ronald and Pastor Chris as well, are those who profess to want to honor the king, but do not want to put on wedding garments to live in his honor. Who live like they're still living on the streets. 
who live like they're still in the highways and byways, keeping company with those who are giving more attention to their businesses, to their farms, or maybe even rejecting the king altogether. The concern pastorally is those who profess, but by their very practice contradict. God is consistent that there are consequences to such decisions, potentially even the reality that one who professed was never even saved. Notice how this says this in verse 14. It ends with this little phrase that's profound. Verse 14, but many are called, but few are chosen. For many are called, but few are chosen. What is this idea of call? Well, in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, I want to make sure you understand what a call means in the context of the Scriptures. So let me just make sure it's clear to you what a Gospel invitation is. All people have sinned or rebelled against God. This is exactly what Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says. The penalty for our sin is rebellion and is death. This is the, the gospel invitation to acknowledge this. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. But Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is what the Scriptures say. This is the gospel invitation. To acknowledge that there is a holy God, to acknowledge that you have rebelled against that God, as every one of us have, in rejection of Him by conscience and by command, but that there is hope given to anyone who would believe through Jesus Christ the Son, through the King's Son. Here He is, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Jesus is sounding a warning here that those who hear God's call and know of His grace must not think that that call is the same as a response. It's not enough for you just to acknowledge and affirm what I just said. How will you respond? You basically have two options. Reject or repent. Reject like those in the parable rejected the invitation for a variety of reasons, all of which end up the same consequence. Or repent, respond acknowledging that you've rebelled and wanting God to change you. Surrendering your life to Christ, putting your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Listen to what Jesus says earlier in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Listen to these words as an invitation. Picture them being told to you right now by Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why would you stay outside when God calls you inside to come and be with the Son? Listen to how the Apostle John describes it in John chapter 1, this very scenario we're looking at here. He came to his own... Jesus, coming to His own, the Jewish people, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him and believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. <laughs> How amazing is that? But the second part of verse 14 of chapter 22 says, many are called, but few are chosen. 
This is the gospel mystery, but nevertheless the gospel reality. Jesus is talking about election here. He is saying that not all who are called will finally be saved. Endless amounts of people have heard the gospel, but sadly and tragically, nobody who's heard has responded. What Jesus is talking about here is an expression of the doctrine of election that we find in one form or another throughout the Scriptures. The Jews would even say themselves, all Israelites will share a common in the world to come, but that's actually not true. Jesus was rejecting that. The gospel invitation goes far and wide, but not everybody who hears believes. Think of what Paul would later say himself in Ephesians chapter 1 as he describes this. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Listen to what Jesus says himself in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus says in verse 34 or verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. But verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Friends, this is an opportunity for humility for all of God's people. That you are saved not because you're the smartest person in the room. Not because you're the most righteous person in the room. You're saved because of God's grace in your life to do what only it says in Ephesians chapter 2, God would do, verse 4, you being dead in your trespasses and sins, but verse 4, but God being rich in mercy made you alive. You are a living, walking testimony of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life. Once we're dead, but now alive. Once blind, once we're dead, but now, but now you see. Once deaf, but now you hear. Praise be to God. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.